Good evening and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden, and joining me as tonight's co-host, Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst, Dean Johnson. It was about two years ago when we ran a four-part series to examine whether the guardrails have come off the legal system. We spoke to defense attorneys, candidates for elected office, prosecutors, even a judge or two. A year ago, we looked at primary elections, wherein San Francisco voters overwhelmingly endorsed Proposition 8, recalled Progressive District Attorney Chesa Bodine, while two neighboring counties turned out relatively liberal sheriffs in favor of candidates touting progressive reforms. And in two counties, contested races for district attorney resulted in re-election of incumbents with very differing policies toward criminal justice. And tonight, we look to a major change in criminal justice, a major platform reform, with a review of Proposition 47. Dean? Good evening, everyone. You know, Proposition 47 was a ballot measure passed by the California voters back in November of 2014. The law made certain nonviolent property crimes and simple drug possession crimes, which had previously been felonies that could get you sent to prison, into misdemeanors. The debate over Prop 47 is now hot and sharply divided. Civil rights groups, the criminal defense bar, and supporters of the measure claim that it has led to reduced crime rates and safer neighborhoods. But on the other side, law enforcement, prosecutors, and business leaders blame blame Proposition 47 for everything from organized retail thefts and store closings to automobile burglaries to open-air drug dealing to robberies. None of which, by the way, was mentioned in Prop 47. So who's right? Have we become too soft on crime? Or have we made our communities safer and our criminal justice system more humane? What do you think, Jeff? I think this is a hot topic with passionate arguments from multiple perspectives. And as always, we want you, our listening audience, and most important guest, to be part of this conversation. So give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And bear in mind that just like a physician won't diagnose your family member based on a phone call, our attorney guests can't provide you with precise legal advice. They lack all the facts relating to your case. However, we're happy to pass along the legal principles to assist in your decision-making. And while their legal guidance mightn't be the positions of their employers or their clients, our attorney guests are here to help. You know, Jeff, once again, you've hit the nail on the head. There are compelling arguments on both sides. But fortunately, joining us tonight, we have an elite panel of guests who are here to sort this out. Who's our first guest, Jeff? Judge Eugene Hyman served on the Superior Court of Santa Clara County for some 20 years. He is the first American to receive the United Nations Public Service Award. Judge Hyman helped create and serves in the field of therapeutic jurisprudence, a philosophy that advocates treatment for particular categories of offenders, such as domestic violence. 
And also joining us is Cherie Wallace. Cherie is a Bay Area criminal defense attorney with over 15 years of experience. Ms. Wallace began her career working for a small immigration firm and the Marin County Public Defender's Office and at Bay Area Criminal Lawyers, PC. Since 1970, and she now serves as a member of the San Mateo County Private Defender Program, where she handles all sorts of criminal matters for indigent clients out of San Mateo County. Jeff? And speaking of the Private Defender Program of San Mateo County, Scott Sherman is the managing attorney for the Private Defender Program of the San Mateo County Bar Association. Previously, Scott practiced before the New Orleans Public Defender's Office, After six years of trying difficult cases, he transitioned into management and enjoyed sharing the experiences and insights he gained from trial work with those that he supervised. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that we did invite prosecutor offices, two different barrier prosecutor's offices to join us, and unfortunately, uh, none was able to be here tonight. But our final and most important guest is all of you, and we welcome your questions and brief comments. There's much to discuss. And with that, Judge Hyman, Cherie, Scott, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So our listeners know that I like to start the conversation with a big question. And my big question tonight is as follows. Um, The United States has the highest number of incarcerated people of any nation on Earth, more than North Korea, more than Russia, and more than China. And yet we also have the highest rates of violent crime of any industrial nation. Prohibition, which back in the beginning of the 20th century criminalized alcohol, was a national disaster. Criminalization of marijuana and other recreational drugs gave otherwise honest people felony records. Now, California is creating the so-called care courts, which apparently will dump a large portion of the homeless problem in the court's collective laps. My question for the panel tonight, does increased carceration ever solve a social problem? Or are we just sweeping all of these problems under the rug by transferring them to the courts? Who would like to take a stab at this? Cherie, you were nodding. I think you just volunteered. (laughs) No, my concern is always trying to identify what the actual issues are. And... I can tell you, as a person who's represented thousands of criminal defendants, I have never had a criminal defendant come to me and say, the reason I committed my crime is because the laws were soft on crime or or because, you know, I, I, I had other choices, but I just went this way. The majority of people that I represent have three different things that influence their criminal activity. One is mental health two is substance abuse, and three is poverty. And I can tell you decisively that incarceration actually doesn't cure any of those things. It doesn't improve them. It doesn't address them. And I have never seen incarceration do anything for my clients other than temporarily remove them from an environment that it's essential for them to learn to live in in a way that is productive and in a way that benefits themselves and the people around them. So from my perspective, an incarceration is something that is a temporary solution to a problem that really isn't the one that we should be addressing. The problem we should really be addressing is 
if the catalyst for criminal activity has to do with substance abuse, mental health, and poverty, what can we do to address those issues so that we don't have to have these uh, temporary housing facilities called prisons where we essentially don't seem to accomplish anything if the fact is that the United States still turns out more criminal cases and puts more people in prison than anywhere else. Let me ask the meta question that I've always wanted to ask. It, you know, it, that's that's a great answer. And that's the answer we get from sociologists, economists, and so on, that we should address the underlying problem. So my, the question I always want to ask is, okay, we all understand that. We all understand that it makes no sense to address the homeless problem by forcing the homeless into court so that they so that the court can micromanage their lives. We all understand that prohibition doesn't address the problem of drugs. Why don't we address the underlying problems? Is and why do we always turn to greater incarceration as a quote unquote solution to those problems? Is it just easier? to put people in jail and, and sweep the whole problem under the rug? Well, doesn't it always start with the fact that we all like simple answers better than complex answers? And simple answers are even better when they are answers to political questions. Like the, the question of increased incarceration is often not what's better for the, what's better for the community, what's going to help somebody uh, straighten out their life or help someone get better, assuming that they did commit a crime. The answer is still, hey, there's someone on, there's someone on my block that's, uh, that has broken into my car. I want all of the people who break into my car to be arrested, taken away, thrown in jail, and not let out. It becomes a simple answer for a political question. Trying to address how to treat people is difficult. How to reach people is difficult. How to fund treatment programs that are actually going to work and be effective for people is difficult. And since it's difficult, it's not politically expedient. So I, not to go around in circles on it, but the, you know, until, the, the, until politics wants to really deal with the difficult questions, we're not going to get past – you know, we're not going to get past these simple things of crime is up. We want more. The people want more incarceration. Yeah. But, you know, know, I think I think there's a valid question about where we're drawing lines here and how do we separate those folks who because of their behavior, because of the things they do, we need to be separated from them. You don't want somebody living next door to you who has already killed four or five people. And at the same time, we don't necessarily want to take people off the street that have taken a pack of gum from the store. Yes, we can lock them up under, even after Prop 47, they can be locked up for six months for taking a pack of gum. Somewhere, there's a balance. There are folks that we in the public need to be protected from. The problem is, is that traditionally the government has cast a very wide net. And we're really talking about whether certain types of things should be criminalized or whether people should go to prison for simple drug possession, for example. Um, a good friend of mine still advocates the good old days when marijuana carried simple possession of a small amount, carried one to five, indeterminate in the state prison. Judge, help us draw these lines a little bit. Well, <clears throat> I'm very concerned about uh, people who have uh, mental health issues and who have substance abuse issues that don't receive the uh, the uh, interventions 
that they need. I, I think it is cruel to house mentally ill in, in a jail setting, whether it be the county jail or whether it be state prison. It would be a lot more effective, a lot more cost-effective and fair and humane to be able to intervene and help these people that have mental health issues. The other thing that I find offensive is how many prisons in our state and in other states that don't have simple substance abuse uh, programs such as AA or NA, and how many of these prisons don't have something for literacy. We know how to help people who are illiterate, and it doesn't cost next to nothing to educate uh, people. Um, Reality is that you get much more rehabilitation opportunities in the county jail than you do state prison. We don't hold our prisons accountable for um, recidivism. Uh, We don't hold uh, the rehabilitation aspects of our system uh, accountable for rehabilitation. We just don't, and they need to be held accountable. If you're a prison warden and and your people keep coming back, they want to lose their job. Um, But it would be a lot cheaper to provide rehabilitation than it is just to incarcerate. And the simple fact is, is that our county jails, give or take, do a much better job. They have coalitions with uh, community colleges, coalitions with um, uh, adult ed, there are ways for people to potentially take advantage. And in my county, when I was working, they did, or at least many of them did. So I agree, we've got to get the mentally ill out of the system, and we have to provide better intervention for those that have substance abuse, which is why I think that misdemeanors are important um, because they're the opportunity. I don't want people to get records, and I don't want people uh, to get locked up. I want people to get um, the services they need. And sometimes you have to use the threat of incarceration in order to force people to take advantage of these programs. And, you know, I've spoken to people in AA and NA, and what they have told me is that very few people actually get into intervention willingly. In most cases, they were forced by employers, by family members, or by a court. And I think that those are all effective ways for getting people into treatment. And that's what I want. And the criminal sanction, to the extent that it's necessary, helps keep people on track, assuming that you have judges that are knowledgeable, probation people that are knowledgeable, and intervention programs that are knowledgeable and can address the many, many different facets, including homelessness, mental health issues. There, there are ways to make it work but to uh, pot potentially but to say that prop 47 is responsible for our uh, our ills with respect to criminality really 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 makes me angry because nothing could be further from the truth you know i i would like to ask you guys a question because if before the show our guests were having this vigorous discussion and what uh, what struck me was the difference in perspective um when we talk about Prop 47, you know, it's very easy for the voters collectively to say, okay, lock them all up, you know, and throw away the key. But when you're in the system dealing with individuals and dealing on that micro perspective rather than a macro perspective, 
things become a lot more complicated. And I'm wondering if there are any social policies other than the courts that could deal with that micro perspective and actually treat the individual as individual. What do you think? Well, that's what the purpose of, of diversion is, which I'm a big fan of. But unfortunately, you need the prospect of uh, sometimes the prospect of a criminal sanction to make sure that people complete their contracts. Um, and I have no problem with a person completing their contract and their uh, crime goes away. Their record goes away. Um, but also we have to be realistic with respect to um, diversion and, and intervention. Too many times we set the bar way too high, especially for people that have um, all of these issues with respect to mental health or with respect to substance abuse. I mean, to expect a person with mental health to do 40 hours of volunteer work is just not realistic and is unfair to them uh, and unfair to the system. So we need to be realistic in terms of what we do. But to try to be more responsive to your question, um, it is certainly possible. We haven't, we don't have the will. We haven't exhibited the will uh, to make that work, uh, whether it's political or otherwise. But I do disagree with uh, someone who said um, that uh, the public wants to lock them up. No, 47 was passed in part because California was up against the wall in, with, in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, hey, California, you're over-incarcerating with respect to the amount of prison space you have, and you're going to either have to build more prisons or you're going to have to start releasing people. And uh, the voters said, no, we're not going to give you more prisons. This is ridiculous because if we build it, they will come. And the public in passing 47 made it clear that that was not the way they wanted to go. And it seems to me that those politicians and others that are objecting to 47 seem to forget that that was one of the motivating factors in terms of passing the proposition in the first place. Let me step, uh, step back a little bit. We spoke of 47 before. We spoke a bit of it in the intro. Would you like to take a moment and tell us exactly what Proposition 47 was? And it's been 10 years. We've had a little bit of time to study what it does right and what it doesn't. Well, but you raise a very interesting point. I don't think we've done a real good job of studying it because the people that are opposed to it saying 47 causes all these problems. I have yet to see the research that supports that. You've got all the the, the police people. You've got um, mayors. You've got a number of people saying 47 is responsible for all this. Show me the evidence. Show me the evidence that shows that there's a, ca a causal relationship between 47 and, and the problems. And I agree we've got a lot of problems. But I think the problem is is that people – by people, I mean everybody from the police, prosecution, the courts, are not doing what the law already allows because it's just too easy to complain. Um, that's baloney. 47 is not the cause of where, we're, of where we're having problems. I think a big problem in terms of the cause is the law allows us to do certain things and we're not doing it. Well, I actually read an interesting article in the Sacramento Bee where they actually looked for and found the stats that talk about what Prop 47 did and did not accomplish. And yes, crime is up over last year, but it's nowhere near where it was before the pandemic. It took a year to kick in. The first year it was in effect. Property crime rose about 8.15%. But then it started dropping. 
2.19 percent in 2016, another percent and a half in 2017, another five percent in 2018, almost three percent in 2019, and eight percent in 2020. So it's been in a pretty strong downward spiral since Prop 47 passed. I think, from my perspective, what's changed is not that the crime rate has shot up so much as if somebody goes in and shoplifts from a local store, it's televised everywhere. They're turning over these surveillance videos. Nobody's interceding with the people that are walking out the door. And all these videos are going out on the news. Now, I think the problem is is that we're not taking misdemeanors seriously. Again, I'm not asking that people be locked up. I'm asking that people be brought into the system. They're given opportunities for diversion or otherwise. And then when they don't take care of business, they're violated. And then they receive appropriate consequences, which may include... Uh, a course of incarceration. Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think there's any relationship between 47 and the shoplifting mobs. I think that shoplifters that are commercial shoplifters need to be held accountable. A person who is uh, doing a one-time or two-time petty theft, that person isn't going to jail unless, unless... they fail to appear a number of times or unless they continue to commit uh, commit crime at some level. So to, to say that 47 is responsible for the people that are smash and grab and gone is just plain ridiculous. I think it's interesting, um, Jeff, in terms of pointing out uh, whether crime is up or down, but that still doesn't show me that there's a causal relationship between the passing of Prop 47 and the crime problem uh, that we have, whether it's perceived as being high or perceived as being low. I think the people that um, are brazen with respect to shoplifting uh, need to be held accountable. I think we need to have a concept that misdemeanors matter. And the reason why I think misdemeanors matter is because a misdemeanor is an opportunity to intervene, and assuming that the system is working correctly, to be able to get people the help that they need, whether it be shelter, whether it be in, um, a mental health intervention, whether it be substance abuse, literacy, whatever it is. And I think that to say that misdemeanors don't matter, which I think is what is happening, does a disservice to the individual, and it certainly does a disservice to the public. Let me turn it over to Scott. You see a lot of the cases that come across the desk that are typical filings in San Mateo County. We may not be typical of the whole Bay Area, but it's a pretty good pretty good sample to choose from. When you see things such as these organized retail thefts where a flash mob goes into a store and takes thousands of dollars worth of goods, when you see brazen smash-and-grab automobile burglaries where the people inside the car are terrorized. When we've seen open-air drug dealing, when we've seen out-and-out robberies, are any of these affected by Prop 47? That's a good question. The answer is no. Those are the serious... Those offenses sound serious, and they are serious, and they're still serious. They were felonies before Prop 47. They're felonies after uh, Prop 47. Prop 47... The way it's understood publicly has become sort of a scapegoat for things. And, you know, no no greater place have I seen it be a scapegoat than with the closings of pharmacies in San Francisco. Uh, 
instead of saying that they're losing money because their business model hasn't worked because there are too many Walgreens uh, that are all over the place, they say, oh, well, we have to close these because of all of the all of the crime and all the shoplifting. And and so it just becomes a popular thing for people to use and misrepresent uh, in the media. Serious crime is still serious. There are still serious consequences. We see it all the time in San Mateo. It is not a – nobody will mistake San Mateo County for a soft jurisdiction. It is a place where people still go to – where still pe- uh, where prison is still pursued by the district attorney's office. In fact, a theft can turn into – a felony into a robbery very quickly. For instance, if a if a loss prevention officer, one of the security guards at a store, goes and tries to stop somebody who is walking out with a, who's trying to steal something, and they they come into contact with each other, boom! That's now a robbery under California law. It's called an Estes rob, referred to as an Estes robbery. They charge them all the time in San Mateo, and I would say overcharge them in San Mateo. So to say for the opposite, as far as Prop 47 reducing crime, it hasn't done enough. There's still ways to overcharge crime in uh, in California uh, overall. To that end, I was uh, fortunate enough to have some success with the Nesta's robbery series of charges just yesterday. But that said, um, you know, we, we've heard a lot of people talk about stores that are closing because of shoplifting. And as was pointed out in a letter to the editor that was just in the Mercury News uh, yesterday or Monday, um, the stats don't support that. In actuality, employee theft far, far exceeds any amount of shoplifting. The stores are either profitable or they're not. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM. And tonight we're talking about a major change in the criminal justice system. It's 10 years since the passage of Prop 47. My guests tonight are retired Judge Eugene Hyman. We have Scott Sherman, the managing attorney for the private defender program of the San Mateo County Bar Association. And Barrier-based attorney Sheree Wallace, my co-host, Dean Johnson. And we're talking about Prop 47. Generally, we're here to answer your questions, not only on Prop 47, but if you have questions about criminal law. Our phone number here is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking about the criminal justice system. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. And again, that number is 866-798-8255. So I guess that begs the question, why are these stores really closing? Again, I, I think we have to look at what's been going on over the last several years And the reality is that the last several years have been incredibly difficult for all businesses. COVID was a tremendous shock to the system. San Francisco was fairly heavily populated. Now we have vacancies in somewhere in the upwards of 30 to 40 percent of the housing that's available there. And that is because people simply can't afford to live there anymore. The economy really still hasn't fully recovered from COVID. So a lot of the stores that are there selling the goods that they sell, 
there just aren't the same amount of customers there buying on that level, purchasing on the level that they were before. So that's a major component is a lot of people have left California because the cost of living is so high here, and that does affect retail. In terms of the petty theft uh, issues that face local businesses, you know, as Jeff pointed out, employees tend to steal from businesses more than strangers who walk in. And the amount that strangers steal in terms of the overall issues of what the stores are facing, that's going to be minuscule. And a lot of stores do and have invested in security. And I will say anecdotally, in my practice, and I represent plenty of people who are charged with petty and grand theft, a very, very large percentage of those people never make it out of the store with the goods. The store actually recovers the goods right then and there, and the clients are arrested right then and there without the store losing a dime. So from an anecdotal perspective, those aren't the people who are getting away with the merch. I don't think that the stores can really lay it at the doorstep of these folks who are being arrested and who are committing these crimes, by the way, on camera and are often having to pay restitution, lofty restitution. In fact, a lot of stores, when they catch people and bring them to the back and hold them until law enforcement arrives, they make them sign a document paying somewhere, some in some cases, upwards of three to $400 just for the failed attempt to steal from them. And then after they pay Macy's or Nordstrom's or wherever they were, three or four, five hundred dollars, then they go into the criminal court system where they have to pay court fees and fines and restitution. So there's not really the the level of loss when it comes to petty thefts or more lower level thefts that I think people think there is. And to see somebody pay that four or five hundred dollar fine because they took a burrito and now they're getting prosecuted with a misdemeanor, even a misdemeanor, sometimes it gets a little bit ridiculous. Well, we should break for a station ID. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. And, Dean, I could see that you've been wanting to get in on the conversation for a bit. I'll turn it to you. Yeah, you know, let let me take this in a little bit different direction. You know, I I agree with the judge that sometimes the the threat of criminal sanction is a great tool for getting people back on the right track. But, you know, I'm wondering if the problem isn't that our public policies are just upside down. Um, You bring somebody into the criminal court and then you put him or her on probation and say, maintain employment or schooling, go to programs, do this, do that. And if they could do that, they would have already done it. Um, The problem is they're homeless um, or they have mental health issues and they can't really do all of those things. So they're being set up for failure. In some of the Scandinavian countries like Finland, they've turned those policies upside down and they have they have programs that they call housing first. And they basically built enough inexpensive housing so that people can actually have a place to live. And guess what? 
Um, they've cut their home, they cut their homeless problems by about 40% in a matter of months. Recidivism rates dropped dramatically. Crime rates dropped dramatically. Um, people are getting jobs. I mean, isn't the problem, uh, going back to what I said earlier, isn't the problem that we put people into the courts first rather than creating the infrastructure that would help them solve their problems? Well, I, I agree that we have to be smart uh, with respect to probation conditions, and I agree that many times a probation condition that is given to people with mental health issues in terms of seek and maintain employment or education is 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 doomed to fail. I, I agree, totally agree with that, and I totally agree that we need to be making our uh, systems um, more responsible in terms of um, giving people what they need, which in many cases is uh, substance abuse intervention as well as homes. Housing is a huge problem, and uh, that if a person isn't housed, they're going to get into trouble. Uh, so we have to be smart about that. Um, but I'm not willing to go uh, all the way and say that, um, you know, I, I appreciate that certain kinds of uh, programs work uh, in uh, certain countries. You know, Portland has basically uh, gone to uh, decriminalize uh, substance abuse, and uh, it hasn't worked for them. Um, it might work uh, it didn't work in, in um, Portugal either, as far as I know, um, but I'm not opposed to trying. But on the other hand, uh, it didn't work. Look, we want to be discouraging uh, people from using uh, drugs and uh, and alcohol to excess, not one of saying, hey, you know, um, um, you know, it's a marijuana cafe. Come on in and talk uh, you know, to your heart's content. That doesn't work. And in terms of having a productive society, people that are excessively using uh, substances, whether legal or illegal, because alcohol, after all, is legal, um, that doesn't work. And we want to be integrating, uh, doing a better job with our schools. You know, I appreciate that we ask our schools to do a lot. We want them to um, to teach about um, um, uh, sexual education. We want to teach them about hope. We want to teach about a lot of things. I I appreciate that. Um, but unfortunately, if we're going to have a criminal justice system, then we need to hold the partners of the criminal justice system accountable. And we need to be keeping better statistics in terms of what works and what doesn't. And we need to be holding the people that are in charge of these various systems accountable in terms of if they don't rehabilitate people, then we need to get people in there that are. Let me turn it to Barbara from Oakland. Barbara, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you. I was surprised that someone had mentioned Finland, who spends a lot of money rehabilitating people who get into trouble with the law, including murderers. They're not shunned and shut away forever. The other point I wanted to make is that we spend a lot on the prisons, but our educational system, our children are getting a less than education publicly. They have no, quote, frills like art, like physical education, like many of the things that, they, that would take up some of the energy 
that winds up being used in this circle in the cars and it becomes quite an adventure in terms of their energy to get together and run in and rob a store or to see how quickly they can get in and out of a car or dismantle a car. Just imagine all that energy being schooled in a, in a proper education to start with and something to do after school other than get into trouble. Yeah, you know, Barbara, that, that's sort of what I mean by policies being upside down. In California, we spend about an average of about $3,000 a year on, on a public school student. We spend about $42,000 a year on somebody who's incarcerated in prison. I think that's upside down and backwards. Well, it mirrors our national government, doesn't it? It sure does. We, Barbara, we you brought up... Afford, we, we, we can't afford to educate our children but we can always rustle up a few billion dollars to help somebody in a war somewhere. Barbara, you brought up the example of Finland. I know we've touched on it as well. Have you done any comparison to see what the crime rates are there and here, or similarly what the standard of living is like there versus here? And I don't mean to put you on the spot, and if my guests... Anybody else here in the studio is familiar with that? Um, feel free to chime in. But it seems nothing to me- in. I've done nothing in depth, but I know that all of the so-called uh, First Nations spend money on social programs, unlike our country. And, and we, we are also the, we're at the bottom of the list internationally. We've created a huge industry of fear, and whether it's war overseas or putting people away, having cameras photograph even minor transgressions from people, um, it, fear sells news, fear sells commercials, fear makes big money, and it certainly takes a lot out of what we could be doing to live our lives at a higher level. And I'm sorry, Cherie, you were trying to get on that too. Well, you know, it strikes me what Barbara was saying is that we're kind of the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to making these social advances. And yet we're also at the top of the totem pole when it comes to incarceration. We lead the world in, in, with respect to that. So and I, I want to echo something from Barbara that I come across and it's very frustrating to me in my practice. And that is I come across people who are articulate, young able-bodied people all the time, but they don't have a skill yet. They don't have direction. They don't know where they're going in life. They don't have those things. And while I do think there have been advances in a lot of jurisdictions, including San Mateo County, where I do the majority of my practice, trying to form what's called collaborative courts, courts that focus on things like diversion, which, you know, which Judge Hyman was talking about, I, I, I do want to say, though, we're not very good at it yet. And granted, we're still in, uh, learning how to do it, but the reality is there are not a lot of member-only jackets. It is very hard to get diversion in most of these in most of the jurisdictions. I had a client today who was denied diversion, and he drove on a suspended license and possessed a meth pipe. Those were his crimes. He possessed a smoking device, and he drove on a suspended license. Those were considered too serious to give him diversion. 
so, so that's not working. We need to be able to actually put people in diversion and and broaden the amount of people who have diversion. And not only that, if we're going to create programs like diversion where we're trying to get away from having people suffer criminal convictions and go to jail and we're trying to go a different direction, then we need to actually put things in the diversion program that make a difference. For example, it's not helpful to me if I have a homeless client who has to do 20 hours of community service. My client is homeless. They need services from the community. They're the one who needs to actually be in the homeless shelter where they would be providing the food. They need to have a seat at the table to eat it. What would be more helpful to me in a diversion court would be folks who are taking up the task of trying to help my clients find employment, to become not only to find employment, but be, to become employable. What can we do to hook them up with people who teach them vocational skills, whether it be academic or whether they're going to work with their hands? Folks need something to do. Years and years ago in our education system, People took shop. People took courses that helped them to become plumbers, mechanics, things such as that. We don't have anything uh, that's available like that in the education system anymore. And the courts certainly don't have a concerted effort to try and link up my clients with opportunities for gainful employment where they could contribute to the community with skills. Yeah, this is why a number of the European countries said housing first because employment is obviously essential. But what, what's the first thing that happens when you go to apply for employment? You have to fill out a form that says, what is your address? What is your phone number? What's your social security number? And the people who are out there being treated on diversion and in collaborative courts simply have no answer for that. And, and the first step is, is housing. But we're not going to have housing. And why do we not have housing? Um, Governor Newsom actually answered the question inadvertently when he was being interviewed by Tucker Carlson, who said, well, why do you have such a homeless problem in the Bay Area? He said, it's very simple. It's supply and demand. We have a lot of rich people who are moving to the Bay Area, and they're driving the rents up, and they're driving the housing costs up, and they're driving the people who used to be able to afford housing out onto the streets. And we haven't taken up the slump. I, I strongly agree with Dean that housing is a major issue, and many of my clients are unhoused. They are either outright homeless or they live on couches or go from place to place without any real stability. And I forget where I heard this, but I think it really is fitting. People always say these folks need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. First, you have to have boots. And, and that's the issue, is that a lot of my clients don't have the boots to pull themselves up with the straps yet. And and, and we do need to address that as well. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden, and I'm joined tonight by NBC legal and political analyst Dean Johnson. And tonight, we're discussing... Ten years following the passage of Proposition 47, is it really leading to the end of Western civilization? Or is there something else going on? My guests are retired Judge Eugene Hyman, the managing attorney for the San Mateo County Bar Association's private defender program, Scott Sherman. I haven't done that before. And Bay Area-based attorney Cherie Wallace. If you have questions, my guests, feel free to call in, as has Barbara. Our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134.
If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us anyway, toll-free, 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. We're really talking about the criminal justice system, and we're happy to have any questions you have. It doesn't have to be where we are in our conversation right now. Um, you know, there's an obvious question about Prop 47 when it comes to thefts. And people are balking at the idea of it has to reach $950 before it could be a felony. But even before Prop 47, the petty theft laws, the laws on theft that have been around for decades, used to say $400. So there was always a threshold. Isn't this adjusting it for inflation? Yeah, I mean, I think it had to – going up is not – is not that is not that surprising, and I think anybody who lives in the Bay Area, in particular, uh, knows that you know, that that amount of money can be grabbed pretty quickly, um, and and still, and, and it also can be aggregated. You know, there are ways of there are ways for people who are concerned about punishment. There are ways for things about punishment, and I, and I think one thing to sort of address on the side related to I think what Barbara was was asking about, and I think also regard you know sort of related to. Um, related to education and other things to do is a lot of California law has evolved in the last decade in addition to Prop 47 with concepts of adolescent brain development and the idea of the – to understand that, you know, for instance, the male brain typically doesn't finish uh, – you know, doesn't finish growing and forming until the age of 25 uh, and that there's a certain amount of impulsivity that can allow – for poor decision making. This doesn't excuse it, right? This is not an excuse for someone making a poor decision to do something illegal, but it can e- explain it. And it's compounded when groups of people are together. So I think everybody who's been a teenager, which is everybody, who's been, you know, will behave one way when they're alone, and they'll behave another way when they're with two or three of their friends. The behaviors that are normal when they're, uh, when they're alone. Uh, and that they would, and things they would never do because they're too risky when they're alone. Well, they'll probably start to consider doing if there's another person there, or two other people, or three people, or four people egging them on, which is a way of sort of understanding and can, you know, I think in some ways probably even understand things like the organized, the organized retail theft, uh, you know, the the people who sort of go together for smashing grabs because they become exciting because the people don't have other things to do. One of the important things for the for the criminal justice system to figure out, and I think it's still evolving and will be evolving for a long time, is how to meet people where they are in the criminal justice system, whether it involves somebody who is drug addicted, whether it's somebody who's just 18 years old and who has uh, – and who's made a bad decision. It's a way that the – and also with things like drug addiction and with the fent, you know, with things like fentanyl and the opioid epidemic. How do we, how do we meet people in a way that's going to actually be helpful for them so we can get them into the, um, into the type of program that, that – into the type of rehab that Judge Hyman was talking about and what he wants to see out of uh, the court system? And what I think is being missed in most commentary that you hear – it's not just that you're throwing a lifeline to people that others would have incarcerated. We're looking at how to make life better for the rest of us because nobody wants to be there and to have your house broken into or the like because we let somebody fall until they finally did break into your house. The idea is to bring the crime rate down. We're talking about different perspectives on how to accomplish that 
and maybe save a few lives along the way. Well, that's why misdemeanors are so important, because if you don't address misdemeanors, gradually people are going to increase their brazenness and and graduate from misdemeanors to felonies. Um, Look, I would hate to live uh, in Oakland and in certain parts of uh, San Francisco, uh, Richmond, and and some other uh, communities that are just inundated with crime. I, I think it's, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that people are entitled uh, to feel safe uh, in terms of uh, where they live and that in, in a lot of uh, places in the Bay Area where you live, it isn't safe. I mean, you read about uh, the brazenness of people that are breaking into homes, even in Los Altos Hills, which is obviously a very expensive piece of real estate in Santa Clara County, where people are home, children are home, or young people are home, and people are breaking in and um, stealing and, and assaulting and, and everything else. And that causes uh, problems in terms of perception uh, that uh, things are uh, out of control, and that's where you get the people that uh, mistakenly believe that it's because of uh, Proposition 47, 57, 36, and other kinds of um, propositions that have been passed. And again, these propositions are passed because the legislature has not responded in terms of uh, dealing uh, with crime in other appropriate uh, ways, in which case then the public uh, has said, uh, well, we're not happy with what you're doing, so we're going to go ahead and do something. And unfortunately, look at Prop 13. That was the proposition that uh, came into being to help uh, homeowners be able to keep their homes um, before Prop 13 was was passed. Uh, It was not uncommon, especially for elderly, to lose their homes. What the big problem with Prop 13 is it it, it applies to commercial uh, real estate. That was never the intention of Prop 13 uh, when it was sold uh, to the voters, and uh, it's never been modified. And that's an example of a proposition that wasn't vetted in terms of legislation. And we have a partial good outcome, but not a perfect outcome. That's the problem with propos- uh, with propositions in general, regardless of whether they're criminal or something else. Prop 47 uh, needs some tweaking, but it's not going to be tweaked uh, because it's not part of the legislative process, in which case there's give and take, and there's an opportunity for um, people to give insightful, uh, um, uh, express insightful concerns in terms of how to improve uh, legislation. Hey, uh, Three Strikes is another example it came into being as a result of a, a proposition, as a result of a horrible crime. And fortunately, uh, Three Strikes was changed, but it wasn't changed for a number of years, and it caused a lot of damage because the third strike could be any felony rather than a violent felony. So we need to be smarter in terms of legislation. The legislation legislators changing probation in misdemeanors from three-year possibilities to one year in most cases, changing uh, felony probation from five-year possibilities to uh, two years in most cases is not a thoughtful response in terms of what is needed. And that's unfortunate. Let me turn it to Philip from Oakland. Welcome to your legal rights. Philip, are you with us? You're on the air. Yes, hi, uh, my name's Philip. Yeah, I'm a, a psychologist in California and I work uh, 
this is more actually more of a comment than a question. I worked uh, in the California uh, CDCR, the prison system, for several years, a while back. And um, I just wanted to say to the, the presenter who, uh, well, I called you the, the bootstrap presenter. I'm sorry, I, don't, I didn't catch your name, but she, you hit the nail on the head. The problem is that uh, most of these people don't have the boots. And I think this is a, it's, it's a culture. I've lived in several and worked in several different countries, and I think it's just the culture of, of white America that is, everybody needs to be responsible for themselves even if they have difficulty doing so and um no yeah I'm, that's kind of the bottom line and I, don't, I just don't see that there's a lot of cultural support for uh the kinds of projects that they've done in in finland and portugal by the way the, the presenter who said that they've been failures the legalization of drugs in portugal and the housing first policy in Finland is quite wrong, and anybody can check this at the, those, the government websites of those countries. They have good outcome data. Portugal has had excellent results from legalization of all drugs or, or decriminalization. The, the, they've had a, a major drop in HIV transmission, um, a drop in all drug use, especially heroin use, um, and a slight increase in marijuana use. That, that's been the effect of over 15 years of decriminalization. And in Finland, um, the, the housing first policy, which has been replicated in Colorado as well, it's not unique to Finland, it's spreading around different countries, has also been a resounding success. So I just wanted to clarify those points. And thank you, it's been a very interesting discussion. And I would love, I would love it if things changed, but I'm a bit despairing about the possibility of that happening. Philip, thanks for joining us in your legal rights. I think your comments are well taken. and. The big difference between our country and theirs is that we survive and monetize fear. Let me turn it over to Peter from Florida. Welcome to your your legal rights. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Monetize fear. I I, I was thinking about it in another context. Um, but listen, this is what I was thinking about because you mentioned the male brain maturing at age 25, and so you know because you hear all, all these crimes these school shootings and stuff it's a gun usually a man usually about 20 late teens but just for the heck of it i googled it whatever oswald was 24 there is something about that you know so my question is how much should that biological reality be taken into account for the law i think i you know i if you think about it like well 18 you're that's arbitrary to say a number. It's like, why not make it 25? You know what I mean? Take account of biology and biological realities. I think from my own opinion, 18-year-olds became adults as opposed to 21 to coincide with the pushback they were getting for drafting starting at 18. And that's really where public opinion shifted. That's just my own opinion. Right, being, being being drafted. If I can be drafted, I should be able to vote. Precisely. They're really two different two different issues. You know, to be to being a good soldier, and being a good voter, being a good citizen, and then it's like, well, what about drinking and driving? They're all sep- They're all separate issues. 
No, you can't drink and drive until you're 21. Well, and, and I think actually those <laughs> things are all related. You can be drafted at 18 because the Army actually wants people who are going to be willing to take those more risky behaviors. You can't drink at 18 because we don't want people to drink who are going to take more of those risky behaviors. Those are all related. And, and actually, Philip, there's an interesting point you made. California's actually done a pretty good job, I think, in the last few years of trying to figure out how to deal with uh, adolescent brain development and things like youthful parole. It's still not perfect, but it's coming. It is coming along. Uh, it's been considered a lot in in death penalty mitigation for years, but actually has moved into has moved into the law. Uh, you know, a lot of different states have changed the age of majority. When I practiced in Louisiana, for instance, uh, an adult was seventeen for only for the purpose of criminal prosecution. So even in Louisiana, they moved it up to eighteen. So it's getting. It is being part, uh, becoming more part of the conversation uh, in, criminal, in criminal law. I wish we could carry on this conversation longer, but we are out of time. And Peter, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco Bay Area. Our guests tonight have been retired Judge Eugene Hyman, the managing attorney of the private defender program of the San Mateo County Bar Association, Scott Sherman, and Bay Area criminal defense attorney Cherie Wallace. Please be sure to join your legal rights again next week, Wednesday at 6, where, as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guests, Eugene Hyman, Scott Sherman, and Cherie Wallace, and my co-host tonight, NBC legal and political commentator Dean Johnson. And on behalf of your legal rights, a big thanks to all of you for listening and for joining in, and especially for all of you and at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Be safe and have a good night. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.